0: Thank you for joining me, and happy Palm Sunday. I am eagerly awaiting this Holy Week as we walk into the death and resurrection of Jesus and we celebrate what is most important and essential to us as followers of Jesus, the character of the God we serve, lived out through his death and his resurrection. If you live in the Pennington area or you plan to join us virtually, I wanna make you aware and invite you to our Holy Week activities. This upcoming Friday is Good Friday and at 7 p.m. we will be gathering together to walk through communion as well as a prayer reflection on the death of expectations or grieving what we have lost in light of the eternity that God has planned for us. And then join us on Easter Sunday at 9.30 or 11.15. We will have full kids program at the 11.15 service with an outdoor egg hunt, but join us for either service as it is going to be full of joy and celebration that our God lives. Of course, if you want to join us virtually, Good Friday will be live at the same time at 7pm and our Easter service will be at 10.30am. We'd love for you to join us whatever way you can. All right, and let's dive into Mark chapter 11. We are into our seventh week of our series, Walking Through the Gospel According to Mark. And if you've been with us on this journey, we are discovering Jesus as a suffering servant king. God who comes and puts on flesh and shows us how to live as well as what it looks like in his coming kingdom. And as we start today, he is now entering into Jerusalem and is taking over his kingdom and taking it back from the forces of evil. I want to start by actually getting a little bit nerdy and nuanced in this. So we're going to do some deep detailed history and we're also going to refer to a lesser known profit and look at their story at length as well. So can I have your permission to do that? I can? Thank you so much. All right, we're gonna dive into some history. I wanna begin by talking about a nuanced historical writer named Flavius Josephus. We know mostly just as Josephus. He is a Jewish historian writing at the end of the first century. And he is famous for his writing Antiquities of the Jews, 93 Common Era is when he wrote, or about 60 years or so after the death of Jesus. His main focus was on explaining and giving context, and some say creating scapegoats, for the Jewish-Roman War, or the Jewish Revolt of Rome and the subsequent sacking of Jerusalem. It's a rebellion that broke out between 66 CE and 73 CE or about 33 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this revolt resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem and the sacking of Israel, the temple itself is destroyed in this time, and then the enslavement of the Jewish people. Josephus in his writings mentions Jesus of Nazareth as a Messiah claimant from the northern part of Israel He also refers to a man named Judas of Galilee, also from the same region as Jesus, as a revolutionary, wanting to bring um, a revolution and a revolt from Rome. He is also famous for popularizing the term zealot, zealous people, passionate, wild Israelites that wanted to overthrow Rome. And what Josephus' writings show is that there was, in the first century, an electric energy of revolution. It eventually erupts into this revolt 33 years after the time of Jesus. But while Jesus lived in the first century of Israel, controlled by Rome, there's energy and there's conversation and there's revolution in the air. And so during the life of Jesus, there is a hunger for revolution. Around 160 BCE, there is a revolution called the Maccabean Revolt. It is a family of Jewish priests named the Maccabees, led by Judas Maccabee, who coined the first recording ever of guerrilla warfare. It's the first recording we have of people diving in and out of alleys, and small attacks here, and hiding back among the people. In this revolt is also where we get the celebration of Hanukkah. Happens during the Maccabean Revolt. The Maccabees push back against Greek occupation of Israel, and they're successful. They repel the Greeks. The Greeks give up and they leave. And this leads to about a hundred year successful ruling of Israelites themselves. The Maccabees were successful in repelling Greece. And this leads to a hundred years of a Hasmonean dynasty, Israelites being ruled by their own kings again, but there's tons of corruption and they're not particularly religious. And this is 100 years before the occupation Rome comes in around 63 B.C.E. So we have Greek occupation of Israel, then we have a hundred years fought from a revolution, a bloody revolution, guerrilla warfare, earns them back their freedom, only to be returned to subjugation by the Romans. And now it's 63 years of Roman occupation, here comes the birth of Jesus. And so into the environment of Jesus is an idea of revolution, is an idea of bloody rebellions to reclaim Israel. And so as Jesus talks about being a revolutionary, we see that it is only one generation after Jesus' death that Jerusalem itself falls to revolution, which results in 1900 years of no formal nation state of Israel. All of this is swirling around when we read our text in Mark chapter 11 as we talk about the triumphal entry of Jesus. All of this is context to the people in the capital city of Jerusalem, occupied by Rome, crying out the phrase, Hosanna, blessing on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Praise God in highest heaven. In Mark, a man claiming divine origins, teaching with authority, performing dramatic miracles, is now riding into the capital, surrounded by crowds of people, clamoring for revolution, and identifying him as a Messiah. In this time frame, in this climate, it should be no surprise that in less than a week, we see Rome lead the crucifixion and death of Jesus, this coming revolutionary. Now let's read the story of our coming king and the revolutionary Jesus as Mark records him in chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. You may know it as the Palm Sunday story or the triumphal entry. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it and will return it soon. The two disciples left, found the colt standing in the street, untied it from the front door. As they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, what are you doing untying that colt? They said what Jesus had told them to say and they were permitted to take it. I want to begin by talking about our unexpected king, a humble, eternal king for all nations, King Jesus, riding in on a donkey. This story is in all four of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. This story, the triumphal entry, is in all of them almost exactly the same in every story with tiny little details different, but the essence of the story is the same. They all have this weird, odd beginning to the passion story, to Holy Week, to Jesus entering Jerusalem to die for our sins and resurrect. It's an odd way to start it. Why a donkey? Why not a horse? Or why not walk into the city unnoticed like he does every other city? Why create this odd spectacle? Riding in with his disciples and Jesus on an animal of any kind is a reference to a king entering their city, is a reference of a kingly monarchy procession coming in, even though this one is odd. And it's odd because it's small and it's kind of wimpy. Just one person on a donkey with coats as his saddle and his disciples, maybe a dozen, a couple more than that. No criers, no trumpets, no dancing women. This is not a normal processional of a king unless this story perfectly underlines the theme that Mark has been revealing to us all along, that Jesus is a suffering servant king who has arrived to humbly take on his throne. It is also Jesus living out a prophecy that's hundreds of years old at the time of Jesus riding into Jerusalem, a prophecy about a humble king ending war, extending his rule to all nations and freeing captives. All of this sealed by the covenant of blood. Let's look at this reference that Mark is writing, that Jesus is living from Zechariah 9, 9 through 11. It reads like this. This is an Old Testament prophet. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Because of the covenant I made with you, sealed with blood... I will free your prisoners from death in a waterless dungeon. Over and over again in the Gospel of Mark, and we can't come back to this theme too many times, Mark is telling us about the character of Jesus, a king who takes back his kingdom, not with force, but with humble, self-sacrificing love. He comes as a king riding on a humble donkey. And we may read this story and the Israelites may see this story and say, you can't conquer a kingdom riding in on a donkey. You can't take back a nation in oppression riding on a donkey. You can't reclaim a throne and defeat every enemy along the way riding on a donkey. But Jesus is the unexpected king who is going to lay down every weapon of war and succeed with humility. Zechariah shows us that King Jesus will not settle with Israel either. Not only is he a humble king who will lay down the weapons of war and usher in eternal peace, he is also not settled with Israel itself. He has a plan for the entire world. The Jewish Messiah was only for Israel. And here we're seeing King Jesus is for the entire world, from Euphrates to the end of the earth. King Jesus has a desire to humbly claim back all of his image bearers in all of the earth. And finally, we see that he is bringing in a kingdom sealed by covenant of blood. For King Jesus, it's the covenant of his blood. His blood shed for us as a cleansing payment for our sin. For our sin separates us from God. Our sin corrupts all of our interactions and relationships and thoughts and feelings and desires. And the righteous, perfect blood of Jesus covers and cleanses us. This is the blood that will be poured out five days from now on the cross. On Jesus' shoulders, he covers us. And he seals this covenant as our king with his own blood. Mark continues in Mark chapter 11, verse 7 now. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their garments over it. And he sat on it. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him and others spread leafy branches they had cut in the fields. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Hosanna, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Praise God in highest heaven. Now let's talk about Jesus, the spiritual revolutionary. And you may think of Jesus, and we think of him as, you know, gentle and lowly. We think of him as friendly and merciful. We think of him as compassionate and caring, and he is all of those things. But Jesus is a revolutionary who topples and overturns the systems and mentalities and kingdoms of the forces of evil in this world that we live in. And here is, in this story, where we get to the dangerous part of Jesus entering into Jerusalem, but also the most joyous, fun, and celebratory aspect as well. And in this is part of the duality, the complexity of Jesus. That while Jesus is riding in, and he knows he's riding into his own death on a cross, the people around him are celebrating a welcoming Messiah and King. And they're celebrating big. And it's, it's truly happening in the moment. It is not contrived or planned for. It is happening out of the abundance of their hearts. They're running around, grabbing things that they can, grabbing coats, taking it off, throwing it down, grabbing branches, cutting them off trees, laying them down. They're just doing whatever they can because they're so excited that Jesus has arrived. They shout Hosanna, which literally means save us now. There's an immediacy to the term. They shout blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is Messiah language to a T. Coming in the, in the realm of David to take back David's throne. They are excited that King Jesus is coming to reclaim their nation. And they misunderstand that Jesus is coming to reclaim their souls and not a nation state. There are two historical references in this, as the coats are laid down and the branches are laid down before him. Two references Mark is probably referring to that are historical in nature. The first is a reference back to 2 Kings chapter 9 verse 13. There is a young king named Jehu who gets anointed by a prophet named Elisha, It's during uh, a bloody time of fighting over the monarchy and who should be king. And King Ahab has been an evil, evil king for a long time. And one of the most evil reigns that Israel ever had under Ahab and his wife Jezebel. And the prophets are just barely surviving. And Jehu in secret is anointed. And they prepare for Jehu to take back the throne. And they put oil on him and he walks out and they lay coats down on the ground as he walks to reclaim his throne, to take back the kingdom as a good king, to take back this evil kingdom. And now Jehu takes it back, and it is bloody, and it involves a lot of death and carnage. For Jesus, all of that death and carnage is taken onto himself. We see another reference, not biblical, but historical, from 2 Maccabees 10.7, a historical record or apocryphal um, biblical books that are important to the church, but not anointed in the same way that we believe the 66 are. But in the story, it tells the story of the Maccabees and the Maccabean revolt, an important revolt, as we've already mentioned, where Hanukkah comes from and the Israelite people rise up against the Greeks. But in 2 Maccabee 10.7, there's a reference to Judas of Maccabee, Entering back in after freeing the Israelites from oppressors and captivity, they cut palm branches and they lay them down before him. And so as Mark is writing to us, an evil kingdom is about to be overthrown and a system of oppression, the people are about to be set free. And both of these are true in Jesus. Both of these kingdoms, the Maccabean and Jehu, are bloody. But in them, Jesus takes all of the mess onto himself. And reclaims the kingdom and sets his captives, you and I, free by his own blood on the cross. Now, if you were rulers in charge of the time, if you were a Roman governor of Jerusalem, if you were a Sadducee or a Pharisee, a religious ruler at the time, and you saw all of these references, you heard about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and that it's referring back to the Maccabees revolting, it's referring back to Jehu taking back the kingdom, it's referring back to all of these historical kings, you would be concerned. And we see why the timeline now accelerates. The worshipers at the gate, as they say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, are referring to a psalm in the Old Testament, a celebratory song, one of the most celebratory psalms that there are, Psalm 118, of God's provision, salvation, and joy. This is what they're singing over Jesus. Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26 read like this. Please, Lord, save us, or Hosanna, Please, Lord, give us success. Bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. In this story is the beautiful complexity and depth of Holy Week. In this story is Jesus' knowledge of what it will cost him to free his people from their sin and shame, his own pain and shame and death. And humility. And at the same time is the exuberant celebration of those seeing their king arise and arrive. They don't fully understand what kind of King Jesus is, but they correctly assess that this is their Savior coming, that this is King Jesus coming, that this is the powerful one prophesied about coming. They're right about that, and their response is right as well. To celebrate and to use whatever you have on hand to give him glory, honor, and praise. To reach back to the Psalms and sing songs about God's glory and honor as you see Jesus. To take off your own coats and to lay down your own resources and allow them to be used by Jesus coming in. To cut branches, wave them, celebrate, lay them down. To do whatever you can to give glory and honor and praise to Jesus, our coming servant-hearted, suffering King. Jesus is the revolutionary. In a moment, after this story, he's about to judge the temple of Israel. He curses a fig tree and it shrivels up. Then he goes to the temple and he overturns and flips tables against money changers and says, you are abusing the house of the Lord and you're using it to abuse the people made in my image. Jesus, as a revolutionary, teaches us that love is more powerful than evil and war. Jesus, the revolutionary, teaches us that the one who is greatest is the one who serves. Jesus teaches us that all are welcome into the kingdom of God, regardless of ethnicity, class, history, race, or gender. Jesus teaches us that the way to glory is through the shame of a Roman cross. Jesus teaches us that every single worldly power holds nothing in light of the eternal kingdom of God. In 33 years after the death of Jesus, Rome will conquer the revolutionaries of Israel. But in 300 years, the followers of Jesus Christ will conquer Rome. And in one moment, in one week from the triumphal entry, Jesus himself will conquer the forces of evil and death for all eternity. Those who controlled with religious laws and those who controlled with physical power have every right to be scared of the entrance of Jesus, the servant king. But it's important for us to remember that those who recognize their need of a savior those who recognize their own brokenness and sin, those who cry out in this world, why does it feel like those who are good suffer and there is no justice? We need help and freedom for the oppressed. We need relief and direction for those who are suffering. I need freedom from my own sin and shame. I need a promise of resurrection from the grave. For those who are in need and recognize their need, the entrance of Jesus is triumphal celebratory joy as our Savior comes for us and our Savior takes back his kingdom and our Savior gives us his glory and his honor and his eternity. Mark's version of the triumphal entry ends kind of abruptly and a little bit odd. It ends like this. Mark chapter 11, verse 11. So Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. It's actually almost kind of lamely Mark, he left because it was getting kind of late and he's King Jesus, but he's got a schedule and it's getting dark. It's weird that he ends this way. A lot of scholars say it ends abruptly because what should have happened when the coming king enters and the Messiah enters his kingdom is the priests should have welcomed him in. Hey, you're here, we're welcoming you in, we're celebrating, we're joining in with you. But Jesus enters and there's no welcome from the ruling authorities. There's no welcome from the religious elites. In fact, we see Jesus look around at the temple, kind of looks around at what's happening and he assesses and we know that what he sees is he sees the institutions built to give worship and praise to God. The institutions built to care for the image bearers of God who come to him for freedom from sin and come to him for a reminder of his provision and power, it's not working the way it's supposed to. It is no longer caring for his people, it's taking advantage of them. It's no longer pointing to God and his glory, it's pointing to their own power and wealth. And we see combative verses immediately to follow. Jesus isn't a tourist, he's been to Jerusalem before. Jesus is a king and God coming to assess how his people are living out his plan and purpose. This is a humble reminder for us. How do we treat our coming servant king? How do we respond when Jesus enters and Jesus comes? Because I'm telling you now, 2000 years later, Jesus is regularly knocking at the door of your heart, coming into the dreams and purposes of your life and wanting a relationship with you, wanting to speak into your earthly future and your eternity. And how do we welcome our savior when he sees the temple of our hearts? I wanna close this time today with a meditative exercise, as we have throughout this study of Mark. And I want to read an extended passage from Psalm 118 that's quoted in this story. And I want to use it for us as an example of celebration and joy. As an example of welcoming in King Jesus who comes into our life, of being excited that the one who sets captives free is here. That the one who wipes away sin and shame is here. And I want to invite you wherever you are right now, get yourself into a place of meditation, a place of reflection. And as I read this passage, allow it to turn your heart. I don't know where your heart is today. You may come into this Holy Week weighed down really heavy. This last year has been really heavy. And you may have a lot of burdens you're bringing in here. And I want you to be able to lay them down before King Jesus, before the cross of his enthronement, and pick up his resurrection and pick up his presence and power and celebrate that Jesus has arrived and loves you and wants a relationship with you. Let's meditate together. From Psalm 118, verses 19 through 29. Open for me the gates where the righteous enter and I will go in and thank the Lord. These gates lead to the presence of the Lord and the godly enter there. I thank you for answering my prayers and giving me victory. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is wonderful to see. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Please, Lord, Please save us. Please, Lord, please give us success. Bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord God is shining upon us. Take the sacrifice and bind it with cords on the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. In this moment, as we enter Holy Week, let us welcome in the presence of God made flesh in Jesus, the presence of God resurrected in Jesus, that he may give us his spirit, that we may live forever, forgiven and cleansed and purified by his sacrifice and his suffering, servant-hearted King leadership in Jesus. If you today are watching this, you don't have a relationship with Jesus or you are not confident in the relationship you have with him, I want to give you an opportunity just to take one step forward in that. Take one step forward towards the presence of God in Jesus and pray this prayer with me and invite him in to be your Savior and your King. Jesus, in this moment, We welcome you in. We welcome you in to rule over your kingdom. We welcome you in to rule over our life. Jesus, I believe that you lived on this earth as God and man. I believe that you went to the cross this holy week. You went to the cross to die in my place and that your bloodshed should have been mine, but your blood covers my sin and my shame. I believe you died in my place, were buried for three days, and you rose again in resurrected power that you may rule and reign and that I may live in your presence. You gave your life for mine. Today, I commit my life to follow you. In the name of Jesus, we pray amen. If that was your first time praying that today, I just invite you to click one of the links around here. Let us know. We would love to celebrate with you and walk this journey alongside of you. Happy Holy Week, and we are excited to walk this journey celebrating King Jesus enthroned on his kingdom this Easter together.